Oh, I, I just wanted to say just one last thing. There's lots more points, but you have the books in front of you. I loved, you know, I, this is the weirdest title in some ways. Don't you think so? Art as a Hidden Message. I was saying to David, I don't know what is a better title, but it's a strange title because it's very hard to know what on earth he's talking about. I, I Forgive me, sir, but it's really true. But he, he just finds it perfectly in here. The hidden message of art is the vibration of consciousness of the artist. And so in a sense, I had to say after I saw that, I said, boy, that's a great title. You know, it, the, the difficulty is that it's a little hard to understand, but that's what he's trying to say. He's really trying to say, look, whatever you think you're putting across, the hidden message you're really putting across is the vibration of your own consciousness. And so if you really want to be a better artist, he says, work on the vibration of your consciousness, and then you'll be a much better artist. Isn't that interesting? And he also says, you know, the, the, the form, the real communication of all art is the vibration that it has in it. That was his original theory that he got an F for way back in college. That no matter what it is, it's the vibration. You read some, you see, you see pictures, you hear music, you see dance, you read words, and they have a vibration that you like or don't like. And that's what you're really receiving. And it's subliminal in a sense, or it's, it's non, it, it's quite apart from all the obvious things is that you just pick that up. And so if your vibration is clear, if your consciousness is dynamic, even if you're a bad person, <laughs> your aspiration is there. I mean, just like talking about the Hound of Heaven. Uh, young husband, I think, was his name. You know, he was, he was a, a, a suffering, difficult person. My Francis Thompson, yes. Um, but uh, his vibration was one of deep devotion to God, and so that's what you get from what he read. It's very interesting, isn't it? And so if you work on that message then all technique and all specifics. See, that was the point that I wanted to make about it. We get so concerned about all these details, but the real message of what we're putting across is the vibration we're putting across. Swamiji once said many years ago, just in terms of the importance of magnetism, he said, you don't always do more good by doing more. Sometimes you have to stop and, and recharge and get your magnetism where it needs to be because it's your magnetism, in other words, your vibrations, that are really, is, is what's really happening. And if your magnetism isn't right, nothing good is happening. And so it's the same as an artist. If your vibrations are correct, then your message will be right. That's why even some things that aren't technically or professional are sometimes more inspiring because of the vibrations. David Eby has put together these, this orchestra at Ananda Village. He's found every single person who ever played an instrument many of whom never played an instrument very well, but he just put them all together in this orchestra, some you know, really great musicians and, and not so great musicians, but the vibration of it is so just joyful that it just sounds marvelous, even when the violins are out of tune, you know, it just doesn't matter, because the, the hidden message of the art is the vibration of devotion and joy that they're putting out. And it's really, it's a, it's a magnificent example because you're listening and you realize this isn't as good as it seems. <laughs> if I can only, it's just, it isn't as good as it seems, but it seems great. It's not just, you know, grandmother looking at little Sally playing. It, there's the hidden message of it is the vibration they're putting across. That's why Swami's always balancing with us in all the art that we do. Yes, take voice lessons. By all means, learn to place your voice. I mean, he's very you know, specific, I mean, like, why not? Learn how. 
But that's not what's going to make you good. What's going to make you good is the vibrations that you put out. So, after having said a moment ago on camera, what a strange title, I also think, what a brilliant title. You know, but it's not going to, people won't get it till they get it. But when you get it, you think, wow, that is really an interesting way to put it. Okay, any comments or thoughts? or? My question is uh, that if one can tune into superconscious or the vibrations to express, that's understandable. But short of that, there is the importance of training or of learning the technicalities of that particular art, which is not trivialized by what you say. No, it was just in the chapter for last week. Swami has a whole chapter on science and art and basically answers that question. So rather than re-answering it here, I think I'll direct you to that because yes, it's a very important question and he deals with it at great length. Between science and art, art is more important than science, which is to say the scientific, the technique of something versus the inspiration. If you have technique and no inspiration, you don't really have art. If you have inspiration and you know how to express it, you're probably going to do a lot better. But if you have to have one or the other, you need inspiration. But generally speaking, a person who will rely on inspiration rather than developing technique isn't really putting a lot of energy into their inspiration either. You know. But sometimes circumstances are such that you just have the inspiration and you can do it without ever having technique. Or you have technique from past lives, or you're creating new technique. Because your inspiration is so original that you have new technique to go with it. Like he describes St. Francis creating an arch that no one had ever created before because there he was. You know, Swami wrote a book about astrology when he knew very little about astrology because he just tuned in. But most of us need both. Or else we're kidding ourselves. Okay, Bob? Uh, Robert? Uh, question. I, when I was reading um, the beginning of the book, I, I was reflecting on how I was kind of viewed hard Well, it depends, on, it depends on which way you're taking. Let me just sort of say this. Um, if, you're, if, you're channeling, if you're channeling something, it is by definition beyond you. It's not within the grasp of your rational mind. If you're just aligning yourself and allowing yourself to be an instrument, you should have exactly that sensation. There is no self. You're just expressing something. You become what you're expressing. And uh, time passes. You don't even know time is passing. You don't know why you're doing what you're doing. You're just doing it. It's marvelous because we're all just desperate to get out of this little confining force. And that's part of the freedom that art gives us. And it also gives us a real taste for that. And when we learn to be a channel 
specifically by trying to create something and overcome the ego that way that actually eventually trains us to meditate because we learn to concentrate so deeply on something that's not ego that after a while you don't have to create in order to do it. It's just what I was saying about the energization exercise. So yes, it should be exactly like that. And that's where the detachment comes from. You just say, wow, look at that. And then you, you know something. You learn from your own art. You didn't know it before, and now you know it. I mean, literally, you didn't know that colors could come together that way. You didn't know the pattern would be like that. You didn't know what this gesture really meant until you made it. You didn't know what the song meant until you sang it. You didn't, I mean, with me when I'm talking sometimes, I didn't know those ideas until I said them. So I love to just do these books. I don't understand these books. I only understand them when I'm explaining them to you. I don't understand them before or after. I mean, when I did... Uh, Hindu way of awakening. I don't know anything about what I said, but I know I said it because I, I have it there. And I know that I did understand that and explained it, but I don't know it now. So yeah, that's the that fabulous part of it. And don't try to make that rational. But it's clear. See, that's what I'm, I'm trying to... It's a clear experience. Something really happens. That's quite different than it being confined by something you can explain. You see the difference? It's not murky. It's not mixed up. It's not vague. It's not dreamy. It's not drunk. It's just beyond. It's so clear. But then when you come back to yourself, you don't know how it happened. Just, wow, isn't that great? Is that fair? Is that a fair explanation of what you're saying? That's the fun of the whole thing. So a good explanation of what it's like to create. Yeah. It's fabulous. Okay, any other questions or comments? Okay. The question is, in the Hindu religion, Goddess of music and a goddess of mm-hmm. dance, and people specifically pray to that. Right. So my question is, what would be the significance of praying to that? Well, it's just a way of it's just a way of it's just a way of giving you a hook, because you're really praying to super consciousness. It's just saying the same thing from another angle. Hinduism is so old; they've they've codified all of it. You know, so Saraswati represents all of that. But what Saraswati really represents is the potential of the human being to receive divine inspiration. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a simple and wonderful image. And, it's, and it doesn't hurt. You know, I have Ganesha right over my computer, the overcomer of obstacles. And every so often I glance over and remind him that, that we're here. <laughs> but it's not, I'm not playing, praying to Ganesha really per se. He just personifies that idea to me. Okay, I think that will do us for tonight. Thank you all very much. Bless you. Okay. I think next week, I think you have it. We read, the next two weeks of readings are a little bit shorter. So four chapters next week. All right. Okay, so what's your question? Um, I can't remember the whole thing, but it, mm-hmm. uh, it has to do, I'm just, That you don't, in, you're not. Creative art happens after the experience, not yes, at the peak okay, of the experience. Thank you. Right. Because then, what I wanted to ask about is, is as much as I know about impressionism, when when they people still do it, but when the impressionists were were, were painting, they would paint not afterwards, but right from the moment. So. Well, I, 
I don't understand. You mean they put, they paint they paint out in, in the, land, the landscape? Out, outdoors and try to capture the moment of the, the light and so forth. Right. I, I don't I don't think those. I'm not a painter, but I wouldn't think those two things would be contradictory. Okay. What he's really saying is that you would look at it, and it would create some impression in your consciousness, and then you would pick up your brush. I mean, but but you're. I think you're you're trying to analyze it too far. I think so. And I yeah, I mean, he, he was trying to put into words it. Let me think of how he would say it. Well, you, you usually, what he was trying to say is the To have deep feelings, you can't also be active. You tend to have to be still in order to really have an experience. So you can't simultaneously be communicating it and having it. You have to take it into yourself, and then it translates through your consciousness, and then it turns into something. I would imagine an artist, a painter, would have that time when he takes in the, the beauty around him, and then he translates it into some kind of a painting. There would have to be some impression to then paint, rather than just going like that, without ever having anything deep happening. And if you, if you tried to paint while at the same time you were trying to feel, you would interrupt the sensitivity of what you were experiencing. I think that's what he was trying to say. He was trying to attune people. You know, this book isn't written, as you realize when you read the chapter about meditation and art. This book isn't written for people who already know how to meditate and already know about all these things. So he's trying to do two things. He's trying to communicate, put into words things that people may not have thought of. He's trying to encourage people to be more attuned to a more subtle way of creativity. Um, so he's, he's trying to get people to understand, you know, calm down, be quiet, think about really how this really happens. It isn't just frenzy, it's also stillness. So I think that was all what he was trying to say. And also he's trying to direct people ultimately to go beyond art, because it's art as a guide to self-realization. So, And he himself says that in this chapter. There comes a point where there's no point in art because you've accomplished everything that it, it had to give you, which is overcoming your ego and merging into a greater reality, uh, communicating that greater reality, learning to appreciate it and receive it, and then what is the point? You don't need to do it anymore. So, so um, he's trying to move people to a point of stillness by reminding them what a key role it plays. And also he's pointing out that art that is born of frenzy is probably not going to be very... Um, moving. If, if there's no inner experience trying to be communicated, but just energy and motion and so on. I think the impression is we're, we're trying to create a moment. That's right. But they couldn't, you can't actually freeze that moment while you're creating it. There has to be, quote, the impression yeah. of that particular moment, but that moment is going to change throughout the time that it's being painted. So there is the requirement of standing back from it to some extent. Otherwise, it wouldn't be just a frenzy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every artist stops and contemplates. I mean, most. I mean, then you get in a flow and you, you're, you don't, there's no self to stop and contemplate. But it's still something that instigates it. That's what Swami was trying to say. There's always some experience that you're trying to communicate. It doesn't have to be anything articulated. And in fact, what he says over and over again, the clearer that initial inspiration 
even if it's not a verbalized inspiration, the more powerful what you're trying to be. I mean, it can be just looking at, um, let's, since we're talking about painting, it could be just looking at something that's so exquisitely beautiful that it, it just pierces your heart with the beauty of it. And you have this intense desire to, to transmit through the, the picture that you're painting the intensity of your passion for what you're looking at. I mean, that's what he's talking about. And then, of course, the effort to hold on to that inspiration among the things he talks about in this section is the um, so many people receive inspiration but then have neither the concentration or the energy to hold on to it. He, he gives us the whole story in there of how he wrote that melody for the a poem of St. Francis. And um, he doesn't put in there, which he sometimes puts in there, that the first few notes of the melody that Swami heard, and he, it was exactly as he describes it, he just saw St. Francis and he heard him singing it. And he just wrote down what he heard Francis singing, and it was so exactly how he must have sung it that either Francis really did sing it into his ear or it was just so close to the same inspiration. But the song... It's that, that very popular song by Donovan from Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. The first uh, notes are the same in both songs. And, and, Swami's, uh, and, he, and then Swami has gone on, because he's not fond of that Donovan song very much at all, but he's gone on to analyze it, which I can't do, showing how he gradually lost inspiration and just kept taking more and more prosaic choices and choices that, brought, that didn't keep the energy flowing superconsciously as those first few notes did. Whereas Swamiji, because he had more training and knew more what he was doing, you know, just kept, kept it going in the direction that it started. And Swamiji also remarks that, which is just very interesting in terms of it being an authentic melody, but Swami also comments that many times, especially in music, um, songs become very, very popular basically just uh, based on the phrase. Because they'll, they'll really receive inspiration for one phrase, but won't know how, how to keep that inspiration going, but it'll be enough. And people will sense something in that one phrase that it'll, uh, it'll become a very popular or even considered to be a relatively good piece of music just on that basis. Donovan's song was enormously popular. Anyway, it was interesting. So, any other comments? Sandy. Uh, so on Saturday, uh-huh. You were talking about Swami's process of writing the, the music right. that inspired to write, mm-hmm. actually creating it, and how he had all kinds of physical problems that came up during that period. When he was finishing the oratorio itself, not during the not during the time when he received the melodies, but when he was doing all the work to translate those melodies into an actual. And uh-huh. at one point, he made the comment that that was it was important work. And that was the, the, the problems, the physical problems, were the result of Satan trying to... To keep it from happening. Keep it from happening. Uh-huh. What's the difference between... Bear in mind, I mean, I think I'm talking to family here. Okay, hold on a second. Okay. Um, when, when Swamiji talks about Satan trying to stop him, um, he did say exactly that, and Master often spoke in exactly those words. Of course, those words can carry a certain kind of connotation for people who don't understand our teaching. But nonetheless, Master himself said that Satan was a real force and that when the light gets too strong, the dark does try to stop it. I just wanted to like put a, a qualification on that. It's the kind of thing you just pass, you, you toss out 
And sometimes people get very reactive to it. You don't mean for them to. So yes, so what was the question? Mm -hmm. My question was, what's the relationship of this satanic force to karma? In this particular instance, Swami's karma? Well, let's see. You mean like, why would you say it was Satan instead of just the fact that he had a genetically weak heart or something like that? Is that, I mean, is that kind of the question you're asking? Yeah. Well, in a sense, everything that tries to pull you away from the light is the satanic force. Everything that causes you to think that you are other than the infinite spirit is the satanic force. It's maya. It's the, it's the force, the opposite force from going toward the light. Now, why would Swami's health be Satan's power rather than just his own? Let me just, how would you explain that? That's a very good question. Is everything happens through instruments? Everything happens through instruments. You mean that there's a light and dark force? Swami's, oh yes, okay, there you have it. Swami's karma would be that he was going to be the instrument of this divine inspiration to bring this music onto the planet because it really is glorious music and it really does give this wonderful vibration, vibration of Christ. So it's Swami's karma that he was able to receive that inspiration and had the capacity to work hard enough to bring it forward and to make it happen. Okay. Now it's also Swami's karma that he has to um, work out sort of whatever residual uh, energies are in his his uh, consciousness. I mean, that's not exactly right, but I mean, Master said he was finishing he was finishing his karma in this lifetime. So the karma is about putting out energy, not being deterred, being a servant no matter what, and just sheer his karma. The way what Swami's karma is above all things is just simple self-sacrifice. It's not really about him learning lessons, my, in my opinion, so much as it is about him just being willing to sacrifice himself. He's not a self-realized master, but greater, greater can no be, love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. Here, then, is the fourth and last stage. Now, it's a very interesting juxtaposition that we don't always talk about, which is that all of us, ultimately, have to come to that position where we're willing to sacrifice everything of ourselves for the sake of others. It's the redemption. It's, it's when we redeem others, we redeem our own karma, all the years of, of not being attuned to God, we redeem with these tremendous effort to help others become attuned to God. And so it's not so much the specifics of what little things are happening for him, it's just this absolute un, uh, unwavering determination, come what may, to do everything he can to follow what he feels God wants him to do no matter what comes in his face. Now then, everything interplays. God gave him a certain body with certain predispositions, certain genetic predispositions or uh, sent him to India and sent an electric shock through his heart that didn't kill him, but nonetheless damaged his heart in some indefinable way, quite probably, that has then given him the capacity to have all these heart problems ever since. And so karma plays into karma plays into karma, so that when he puts out this tremendous force, all the forces are in place for there to be this downward pulling energy that then he can fight against. And fighting against that is also the tapasya, 
And tapasya in this sense is the gathering of energy by the doing of austerities, austerities that creates the uh, new energy that allows something new to happen. One of the saints of India looking at Ananda, you know, in the late 70s or early 80s, said somebody did a lot of tapasya to create this place. And that's an interesting phrase. A lot of, because energy has to be gathered from somewhere and it, it comes out of those who are willing to, to put it out. So whenever there's a breakthrough of something new, there has to be some tapasya that makes it happen. And so that was the karma. Does that all make sense? Now, you can call that also satanic. It's just another way of saying it, that this great light force gets going, and yes, the dark force just tries to blot it out. It's this strange um, world we live in. And so it, it is a real thing. Satan is a real force that, that just tries to, to quell the light. And, and when your karma gets more refined, you get more directly in touch with it. Like Anthony meditating in the desert, you know, Satan was really there trying to destroy him. But Satan wouldn't come so clearly to, to many people because he wouldn't have to. He could just uh, come in the form of a thousand other temptations that we would just fall for, you know, and he wouldn't have to bother to manifest himself directly. Does that make sense? Rick? Uh, Yogananda, and he had this knee There's also the factor of, of which I believe is also true. Swami has occasionally allowed as it might be possible, but he's never really endorsed this thought, so I say this is more my own, which is I don't think, I think a great deal of what goes through his body is not his karma. It's just, it's like Master just using his physical body and the austerities it goes through to just d d direct negative energy through it and then that negative energy gets spent. It's either the karma of all of us or the karma of the planet or the karma of the situation. Who can say? He developed an enorm, uh, extraordinarily degenerated arthritic hips in the first 20 years of building Ananda, you know, from the age of 20 to 40 to 60. I, when he finally had his hips replaced, he has two titanium hips. The doctor, when he you know, looked at what was there, he said, I do not know how this man walked. He said he should have been bedridden. It was, they were so degenerate. He was in enormous pain all the time. Um, but he just did it. And, but he himself sort of said he was carrying Ananda. And then after 20 years, he felt that he didn't have to anymore because others of us had grown up enough and it was strong enough. He just didn't have to carry it personally anymore. I mean, he could have gotten his hips replaced at any time prior to that, you know, long before they reached such a, an extraordinary degree of degeneration. But he, he, he didn't do it until then because it was karmically, it was okay then. He could put it down. Until then, I think he was using his body to do some of the tapasya. So, and that's all Satan, I mean, in the sense that if, when you put out light, the darkness tries to sink you in one form or another. It's just the way this world works. I think it's the same story with the Buddha when he was sitting for enlightenment. The very last moment he was at some great temptation with Mara. Well, Mara came and tried to tempt him, more like Anthony was tempted. Swami's life was more in the course of normal life. Anthony and Buddha were both just sitting there. I mean, there was no... There was no external thing happening. It was entirely within their own consciousness. 
but yes, it is Satan and Mara or whatever you, whatever form you call it. It happens to all of us all the time. We just don't realize it because Master says Satan insinuates himself, I love this, insinuates himself into our consciousness through the means of our own false reasoning. <laughs> so we don't even know we're being influenced by Satan. We just think we're just figuring it out, you know. I don't need to meditate today. I don't really need to do this work today. I, I really do feel a little weak and I guess I better rest, you know, <laughs> instead of you know, that, that powerful charging force that just refuses to regard those things. I remember that Swami tells the story himself of when uh, it was at the early, the very early couple of years of Ananda and several different times, financial, you know, after enormous effort to generate the money, the bank or the lumber company or somebody would do something that would threaten the whole project. And one of those things happened. I can't remember exactly which situation it was, but he was in Sacramento and he, he sort of got word. I think it, it may have been the lumber company or that he, he'd agreed to pay, but suddenly he owed another $3,000 and he didn't have it. And he was just, he said he was so determined, it was a huge amount of money, then he didn't have the kind of network of support. He had supporters, but it just wasn't as, and $3,000 was a lot of money. Now you think, well, gosh, we could generate that quickly, but it was just a handful of people. And he said he was so intent, his hands were shaking and he was driving. And this woman um, who was a friend in Sacramento said, oh, well, just come to come home to our house and we'll have some tea and you'll feel better. And Swami's response was, I don't want to feel better. I want to solve this problem. Meaning, we don't, what difference does it make how I feel? It's a question of just making this happen. And, you know, he's, he's more immune to the false reasoning that makes you suddenly worry about yourself in a situation like that. So I've never really been able to gauge what is Swami's personal karma, what is the karma of the situation, whether there's how much of a person is there to have karma and how much of it is the karma of everything that's happening being run through his system. It's, it, I just don't know. It's, I don't think it's a line any of us could gauge. So that I think was an interesting question. Any other comments or thoughts? It's an important question too because I mean, it's really directly related to what we're talking about. Because this whole story here is about how to be creative as actual channels of higher consciousness. And he doesn't talk about Satan uh, directly in here, but, but all the things that we're talking about, losing your inspiration, giving in to negative ideas instead, not putting out the energy to be clear, and not tuning into a high enough level, all of that, that's all, that's all Satan. That's all... The, the, the idea that we start with that we're going to be a channel for light and then all the forces of this world that suggest we'd be a channel for something less light and the battle that we have to do. He, he makes no real reference in here to what a battle it is, but um, to do what he just suggests so casually is a battle because we have to battle so many elements within ourselves, not the least of which is the ego just to get the ego out of the way. He has some very interesting comments about that, which we can go more systematically. Are there any more questions or comments about anything? Comments about anything? Yes. Quick question about how he keeps that inspiration. How Swami keeps that inspiration? Does he, talk, does he stay in super consciousness? Is that how he manages it? Well, I think a lot of the time. But um, part of it is just the sheer amount of energy he puts out. I mean, you, to keep that inspiration requires 
a continuous flow of energy. And I, I, you know, the little bit of work that I've done, I know that there just comes a point where you just, I was working on something recently, and I just, I just didn't want to work on it anymore. I knew that it wasn't right, but I just didn't want to do it. And I tried to get away with it, and I didn't get away with it. But I could tell just in myself, I was just sick of it. And the answer just was eluding me, and I knew that I was going to have to put out more energy than I wanted to to get the answer, and I just stopped. You know, and I know that Swami never does. Or if he does, he'll get up early the next morning and start again, you know. But he'll just keep going until absolutely every word or every note is exactly what it ought to be. I recall, I told you, some of you this story, when he was writing the oratorio, um, he was staying in the house that we built, the guest house, and we were staying over at Crystal Hermitage in the construction site where they were building. And uh, it's, it's a matter of, it's about two minutes away from each other. And he telephoned one night. It was like about 2.30 in the morning. As it happened, we were up. But uh, he called at 2.30 and he asked if I would just come over. So I went over and he was writing, You Remain Our Friend. And he wanted me, he wanted to read me the verse. And so he read the verse and uh, he said, Well, what do you think? And it wasn't that good. And I said, I thought for a moment, I said, Well, not every song will be your best song. Because <laughs> I know what to say. He said, thank you. And, you know, and by the next morning, he'd, wrote, he'd written what he kept. But you could just sort of, there was just sort of this look on his face. And he almost said it like, I hope this is good enough. And he just, sort of because it was so late, he was a little tired. He just needed another consciousness to come in to tell him what he already knew, which is it wasn't. But it was, I mean, by anybody's standard, it was superb. It just wasn't as good as everything else he'd done. He knew it. He was pretty sure, but he needed somebody to confirm it. And that nobody at that time, nobody else lived anywhere near there. So, you know, I was a person who could come over because we were right next door. Anyway, that, but that was just like temptation. Nobody wouldn't give in. So it's, it's, it's being, how many times in this chapter does he talk about having the integrity not to do anything that you know is not absolutely consistent with your vision. And it really is a matter of integrity. When you, when you work creatively, you really do feel it. You feel that you're betraying your own vision, but you'll say, oh, it's good enough. You know, you'll just say it. You'll say it right to yourself. It's good enough. And he, but he says emphatically, you must never do that because he, just doing it even once begins to diminish your power. Now, it's good enough sometimes if it's a brochure that has a shelf life of a month or something like that. Even, for example, the book that Swami's working on right now, he's writing it, it's, he's, he's, he's writing it for Master. And he commented, I mean, I don't know how he could be more exacting than he is, but he said, there's just simply no margin on this one because these are, this is going out as Master's words. He said, and there's just no margin for anything that isn't absolutely the best that I can possibly make it. And so I, it's an even more of an effort than usual. Just is that thought crystal clear? Is that exactly the right word? It's really energy. It's energy directed in all the ways he said, calmly from, with willpower from here and love from the heart, you know, just in right attunement. And not just energy that's just emotion and frantic, but that's directed with that calm power. And that's where solutions come from. I mean, all the things which we will talk about that are in these chapters. Faith, patience, love. <laughs> That's what he says. Robert, you had a question?
Not anymore? Okay. Yes, Jack? I'm sorry, what did you say? How important would you say is the, um, the actual appreciation of someone for, for a work of art? I mean, for the, for the person, for the people who, who, who might potentially at least enjoy the work of art, whether it's music or fiction, or to that, to the total inspiration, the total value of I missed the first part of the question. How important is what? Uh, the actual audience, or the, the, the uh, people who the appreciators of the the art, the I would actually, you know, I would say no, and I would say the way Swami writes it. I mean, I would say the way Swami writes it. If you are genuinely in tune with a divine inspiration, your satisfaction is that experience. And quite secondarily, what you create afterwards. And you, you do your little bit, and it's good for you, but the, the reason you work so hard to make it perfect is because of the necessity to be a perfect channel. Then with what, the more detached you are from what happens next, the more pure you are in your consciousness while you do it. Now, it would be only natural to feel um, enjoyment, gratification, satisfaction if other people, if you manage to communicate. And, and of course, Swamiji, there's another element, which is that Swamiji says, if you're not communicating, you have to at least reflect as to why that might be so, that you're not able to reach people. And, and depending on what level you're working on, what level your own consciousness is on, you may need that feedback to help you understand where you're not clear or where your technique needs help, whether either your consciousness or your technique needs help if people aren't getting it. But you may also decide that people, if people aren't getting it, it has nothing to do with you because you have received it and you have expressed it and if they're not getting it, it's just the way things are. And you may really, in, in the best sense, you wouldn't care because you would be so satisfied from the inspiration that you felt that anything else would be just coming down from that. So it's, it's kind of a, a balance between the two. But, I, but there, there could be easily be a point in your own development as an artist where you would learn from people's responses. Now, learning from their responses is different than needing their responses in order to feel that you've done, you know, to feel satisfied in yourself. Because, in fact, to the extent to which you are relying on anybody else, you're, you're, you're limited. Because they're just never going to come through for you. It's just crazy. And, in fact, you can get very confused by what people say. Well, he's earning good karma from that. He's doing exactly what God came, God, God sent him here. 
But you see, Swami's satisfaction comes from doing what God asked him to do. And if God asks him to, to create, and then God wants people to be inspired, that's nice. But if God asks him to create and wants nobody to be inspired, that wouldn't matter because Swami would still have to do it. Because he's doing it because God asked him to do it, not because um, Swami wants people to be inspired. It's the same as Mother Teresa helping the poor. Do you see the difference? But yet, karmically, for Swamiji, it's a real good thing. That's what he himself says earlier in the book. When you bring people down, you get that karma, and when you bring people up, you get that karma. Like, no, I just feel like it's, with karma, with Swami, there's a lot of give and take, and there's a generation. His inspirations have been generated in part through the energy exchange with so many people. Uh, I appreciate it. On, a, on an invisible... I, I, don't, I don't, again, necessarily agree, Jack. I, I don't necessarily think that's true. Now, on the other hand, he, he takes... I mean, I just told a story of him asking for my feedback, and he passes his writing out, and he asks people to comment, and you know, he often takes input. And so he is in an interactive process. But I don't know how dependent he is on that, really. And I don't really know really what real part that plays, whether he's just playing that out for our sake. Sometimes I think he's just doing that to train us to be able to perceive that he could proceed anyway, but it's a good exercise for all of us because that's part of his job is to train us to be able to do these things. And so by letting us see his process, a lot of us have learned about how to do things. Right. It's just seeing so many people impacted. No, but Jackie, you're... Way, you probably thought, well, actually, you know, because his interest is in um, Jack, I, I think that's not true. And I think it's very important that I, I keep saying that that's not true. He's human enough to feel satisfied. But in the ideal form, that's not why you're doing it. And if you're doing it because other people are responding to it, to that extent you're going to be, you're going to be trapped by their reactions and it will diminish your capacity to get pure inspiration because you will think about it. You will think about whether people are going to like this, and you will remember. Remember he tells that story about someone saying you write like Shakespeare, and then he wasn't able to write? Because all of a sudden, instead of thinking completely impersonally about the inspiration that was coming, he was trying to also think about how people would react, and that immediately diminished his freedom. Now, and, and that's why, see, what, what it really feels like is that once he's finished with it, he has no relationship to it. Really, he has no relationship to it. He himself looks at it and thinks, that was amazing, and he doesn't have any idea how he was able to do it. I mean, he, he talks about it in terms of when he's writing words, he can't imagine how he could ever write music. And he'll look at the music he's written and he'll have no idea how he wrote it. And then when he's writing music, he'll look at the books he's written and he'll think, I don't know how I ever was able to write those books. And so once they're done, it's just so impersonal. There's, there is no sense that I, Kriyananda, have written this music and everybody's so excited about it and their I feel good about it. It's, it's not his. That's why he says over and over, this is not my music. That's why he laughed when he told that story when someone said, what's your favorite music? He said, mine. <laughs> and then he realized that sounded so funny. But the funny part when he reflected is it's not my music. It's the music that has come through me. And he, it's his favorite. He, as he said, he didn't say it was the best. He just likes it the best because it was what God gave through him, and so he resonates with it. Because, I mean, I, I know myself, and whenever I'm doing creative work, 
if I'm thinking about whether people are going to like it or not, I'm just dead in the water. And it's one of the things that you have to... Now, I've also said, you know, you think about who you're communicating to, and you use that as a magnet to draw the inspiration through. But insofar as you're thinking about whether they like it, it's always corrupted. If you're singing and you, you, you think that people look like you're having a good time, if I'm speaking and I'm thinking that people look real inspired, you know, or asleep or whatever it is, completely warps it. Just can't do it. I think it's more likely that no, he he's perfect. I mean, it's just what it's just what Mozart is in here. Remember when the publisher said, "You're gonna, you know, if you if you don't write music that people like better, you're gonna starve." Mozart said, "Well, then I guess I'll have to starve. I can't write anything else." And and every artist who's really true just writes what they can write. And they just do what they can do. And I think that's really what we're working with here. Okay? And I mean, that's, what, that's the hidden message of art, is that you actually are putting across your own consciousness. And, and just, you know, Swami makes these things seem so simple, to be clear, to be patient, to have faith, and so on. But just this whole discussion about where does the ego fit into it, is the whole question about whether you can do it or not. And that this whole thing about how, he, he talks about how artists didn't used to go crazy, and then most recently they've started going crazy. You know, in the last so many centuries, they've started going crazy, where they never used to before, because all of a sudden there's been this great insertion into the process of this concept of I, the artist. And so when you start doing artistic things with any consciousness of I, the artist, especially if you have a lot of power, I mean, he describes it so well, if there's a lot of energy flowing through and there's a big block, there's a big break like that. And so people who have a lot of power, Kapaz have developed the karmic ability to generate a lot of power but haven't developed the purity of heart or the understanding of how dangerous it is to take that energy to oneself. I mean, someone, people can fall into that without even thinking about it. Everybody just assumes that that's how you would feel. But great artists know. It's just as simple as that. Like Mozart said, this is the music that was given to me. It's the only music I can write. And Brahms says, the music that you think is simply not as great as the music you're given. So really great artists don't have to fight the impulse to be egoic because they, it just doesn't occur to them because their experience is so clearly that it's come from another source that you just are there enjoying it. That's all there is to it. You just enjoy it. And when it's finished, it's just gone. And if you, if you hold it and savor it and contemplate it as your own, then you're trapped. And Swami makes a huge point in here. As soon as something is finished, you must let it go. It must always be a clean slate. Inspiration is ever new. Every moment is different. And, and that's, it's just, those are the disciplines that you find when you're doing creative work, that there's such a temptation to plug in what worked before. And, you have, and that's where you have to put out new energy and not do that. And you have to put out discipline and not even remember. You know, just not even remember that you've done it before. 
just approach it as if it's never been done before and then see if you happen to move in exactly the same way let it be because this moment resembles the other moment not because it was a lower energy choice and I know I can just plug this in I mean you all understand that because I know a lot of you do a lot of creative things and you can feel how that works does that make sense? questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Swami also talks about, um, I love at the very beginning, the first chapter we talk about when he's talking about clarity. And he talks about that there's two directions for creativity to go. One is expansive and one is contractive. And, and he uses it in this sense that creativity can go from your particular experience into some universal um, way of expressing that experience or you can have your personal experience and draw it into a more and more just about uh, just about your experience. You can see the universal threads in it or you can see just the personal threads in it. In a very interesting way, I mean Swami was talking about his own autobiography, The Path and he said he didn't tell any stories about his life. He said there were so many stories he could have told but he only told stories that in some way illustrated some universal principle or could be used to illustrate a universal principle. When a person writes an autobiography, so often what they're trying to communicate is, look at me. You know, look what my life was. Whereas his was not really to say, look at my life. His was to say, look at the life of a devotee. Look at the life of someone who could become a disciple. So every story that he included, he wanted it to have some message that would go beyond the scope of it just having happened to him. It's interesting because I have referred a number of times to this book about Georgia O'Keeffe, which I've enjoyed. I enjoyed quite a lot. But it, it, wasn't a great, it was a good biography, but it was by no means a great book. And I don't know if the subject uh, did not allow the book to be greater than it was, or if the author's choices left it that way. But I, I was reflecting how much information in that book was just gossip about her life. Now, of course, that's why it was written and that's why I was reading it. But so much of it just did not go any farther than her life experience. And there was no effort, moreover, on the part of the biographer to in any way be expansive in the creative way that he expressed this. It was really just all about her and, and, and even almost an effort to particularize it and make it more about her. Do you, do you see what I mean? And so as a consequence, I, I, I mean, I've loaned that book out and I've actually bought it and given it away a couple of times and I've read it more than once. At the same time, it's not that good a book. <laughs> and it's not that good a book for exactly that reason, that it's just so much about her. That it sounds ridiculous. It's a biography after all, isn't it? But for example, I read uh, the huge biography of uh, Lincoln by Carl Sandburg. I don't think I read the entire thing, but I, I read a lot of it. And uh, partly because the character was, is, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a, a great man. But also somehow the way it was written, it was always moving you to understand. Of course, Lincoln played a huge role in world history, and George O'Keefe painted, painted pictures. But there was such a difference because the whole story of Lincoln just went out like this from his particular life. And so many things about him exemplified uh, universal realities that we all aspire to. Insofar as the George O'Keefe book was inspiring were the parts 
where it was really about artistic effort and not about her artistic effort. Do you see the difference? It was, it was so reflecting on it. It was such an interesting example of the particular versus the universal, even just in the stories about individuals. Um, I read a biography of Walt Disney, and it was a little bit, uh, a little bit, you know, he was more like George O'Keefe in a certain sense, but the biographer had a more expanded understanding of him. And it sort of fell somewhere between Lincoln and George O'Keefe. Because there was just more this sense of Lincoln, um, I mean, of, of Disney moving out and trying to help. You know, just really, how do you say it? You had just more of a feeling of the way creativity flowed through him. The whole story was more about cre the creative process and less about him compared to the other book. And I suspect that George O'Keefe's biography could have been written more expansively, but the person who did it wasn't thinking like that. Another example, and this was, this is about spiritual stories. You know, someone will ask Swamiji, tell me some stories about Master. And Swami always says, he can't, if you ask him that, his mind goes blank. He said he can't just remember stories. He can only remember stories about Master in the context of trying to illustrate some spiritual principle. And then they'll come flooding into his mind. Because that's simply how he understands Masters in terms of the spiritual principles that his life illustrated. And he doesn't tell certain stories because they don't, they're facts, but they don't necessarily enhance that. Um, and he's, he's taught us all to be like that. And he's trained us instinctively like that. I, um, I was at uh, satsang that was, uh, this was like many years ago, almost 20, when uh, Muktananda had just passed away and um, Chidvalasananda, Guru Mai they call her now, um, had just taken over his work and David and I were on a lecture tour and we were in Santa Monica and we had a night off and as it happened she was giving a satsang and we'd never seen her so we went. It was this huge 700 people in this gigantic room. It was this, this huge show. And whenever I visited any other spiritual teacher in my life, I'm always so grateful that I'm on this path and not any other path. <laughs> now, nothing to do with their quality. I'm just, you know, this one fits. <clears throat> but in any case, <clears throat> she didn't, it was like three hours and she didn't come in <clears throat> until well after an hour. And many things happened before, including a number of her devotees standing up and speaking. And her devotees were essentially our counterparts. <coughs> People who had had a, a comparable experience to the experience we've had. Nice people, articulate people, clever, funny. Three or four people spoke. They told very interesting stories. But I observed that not one of them made any effort to universalize what they were saying. They would just talk about, I was here and she did that. And some one woman told this incredibly, extremely interesting, fascinating combination of events of, you know, things happening on several continents over different years. And I mean, it was all meant to make you be very interested in meeting the woman who was about to come out and to be predisposed to think that she had something unusual that you would want. And it was, it was a fair thing to have done. But you, you ended up, after all of those speeches, thinking, how lucky they were, you know? And also, to a certain extent, thinking, how will I ever get anywhere? Because I'll never have those experiences. Because they had just never been told to use their creative energy to universalize the experience. I mean, they could have. It would have been very easy 
to have told all those stories exactly as they told them and then just gone the next step to be expansive with their creativity instead of using it to, to draw it to, to one focus that nobody else could relate to. You see? And it just depends on how you're oriented. It's, it's how you're oriented toward life in general. Do we, and, and these are qualities that you can't just sort of develop as soon as you pick up your paintbrush. And this is where earlier Swamiji is remarking, you know, you have to work on yourself. You're, the masterpiece you have to work on above all is yourself. Which way does your consciousness go with your experiences, all your experiences in life? Are you always looking for the universal or is everything about your life coming back to you? I mean, we, you, you can see when uh, the way people look, the way people behave, it's just, the, it's just the way we are, the way we are ourselves. Things just tend to circle back. And it, you either make a tremendous effort to keep your energy always in an expansive direction, and then your creative energy will naturally go that way. And just those wonderful examples uh, that he gives from the Rig Veda, you know, first of all dawns, last of all dawns that have come before, first of all dawns that are yet to come. Isn't that just exquisite? And there it is. It's just the dawn. But the individual looking at it, having this expanded vision, sees it in this great flow of time and space, picking up the grain of sand on the beach. And it's just a grain of sand, but one sees it suddenly in this enormous context. And so if one has even a, a, a very small or even an intensely difficult experience that you then want to transfer translate into a painting or a dance or a song or a, uh, a poem or whatever it might be that you want to do, do you look to see how that experience can be universalized or do you thrash around in ever more contractive circles about, what, about things that only relate to you? And of course, much art is just like that and it, it just lives and dies. It gets thrown out after a while because nobody can use it. An art that's really great, it's not necessarily even recognized at first, but gradually it just insinuates itself more and more into the universal consciousness until you can't live without it. And it just becomes a classic for all time. It's very interesting, isn't it? Any comments or questions or thoughts? My marking these books is so absurd because I virtually marked the whole chapter. I finally realized it's just, it's just my way of like impressing it on my own mind if I make it yellow. You know, then I'll remember it. Um, I don't want to really look at the book. Then Swami talks about self-realization through art. I mean, it's sort of like, this is like the heart of the book. And he, gives it, he, he takes it from two sides. He takes it from um, art appreciation as a pathway to self-realization, which was actually sort of interesting. You know, learning to, to tune in and the role that art can play because... He, 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 again, he goes back to this theme which he started, which is that thoughts begin to differentiate themselves from the mass, from the infinite, first by feeling and only secondarily by intellect. And it's uh, sometimes um, because this path doesn't um, concern itself so much with emotions, sometimes people miss the extent to which feeling is the fundamental reality. And so it's, it's, it was very interesting through this book for Swami to just say that over and over again, you know, that how much heart is, is completely involved in being on the spiritual path. I, I remember when I 
uh, was first getting to know Swamiji uh, because I, I, I enjoy intellectual things. I enjoy verbal conversation and I enjoy thinking and I, I tend to come first from my mind. I just so enjoyed that about Swamiji and you know, even now I'm just so grateful that he has that personality. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to have had that personality, but it works for me and I'm glad. This is just entirely personal. I think it works for a lot of us, and we're all glad. You know, here we are studying this book because he wrote it. He didn't have to write any books, but he did. Um, but I was so fascinated by the extraordinary nature of his of his thoughts of his thoughts. You know how he could look at situations and just understand them. I mean, I was a a young girl in my twenties and um, not a very experienced or I mean, I didn't have any basis for any of my ideas. And I was just so impressed. And I was just so impressed by how he could... Well, clarity, actually. I was just so impressed by his clarity. And I I used to wonder, how can he be so clear? And then one day I noticed his posture is less exaggerated now. He's an older man and his body has caved in a little bit. But then he was so... And he was bigger and then I just looked at I looked at the plane of his the way he approached life and 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 he the the plane of of air was cut first by his heart and second by his head. Do you know? Because his posture has always been very exaggerated like that. And so it, it's like like the push. I mean, I don't know if it was literally true, but the push of his energy was always heart first. And I I observed myself that the push of my energy was I push on the world with my head. You know, and you'll see people a lot of people do who are intellectually inclined will push on the world with their head and and he pushes on the world first with his heart and I became very aware that the clarity of his mind was because of the clarity of his heart and clarity of the heart meaning that there was uh, no fear there was no fear in his heart to see what reality was and so therefore he could see it very clearly he, he just didn't have anything to protect so much of us have so much to protect. Somebody, for example, come to us, let's just say with a good idea for something. But the implications of that idea are going to be a lot of work for us, for example. And so immediately we'll say it's not a good idea. And we'll never have actually heard whether it was a good idea. We'll just subconsciously know that it's going to be too much work for us, so we have to destroy that as a good idea, right? Or somebody will come to us with news about someone else that if we accept that as true, it will, again, have all sorts of implications for us that we may not want to face. Maybe that person will be unsuitable for the job they're doing and you're going to have to find somebody else for the job and that's going to be a lot of work. And so you, you answer them by saying, no, that didn't really happen. I mean, just watch ourselves. We do it all the time. Reason follows feeling. But if feeling is clear, then reason is clear. And we have to be very, very careful when we instinctively respond to things where that's coming from. Now... Swami goes a step, I mean, so I've always sort of had that thought, but Swami goes farther in this by saying that before what causes thoughts to arise is feeling first. It was a very interesting statement. And so art is one of the best ways to refine our feelings. Because if we can refine our feelings, we will then refine our thoughts. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's just, I remember when I read this book the first time, the, the, the enormous importance of art took me a little by surprise. Because I just wasn't thinking about it, even though 
you know, I'm involved in being a creative person. I have been my whole life, but I never, I always saw it as peripheral. So he puts it right in the center. It's like the appreciation and the understanding and the creation of art is a guide to self-realization. Because we can not only, and this is where in these chapters he not only talks about throwing ourselves into it and creating, but also learning to receive the vibrations, the elevated vibrations, and to appreciate those elevated vibrations as they come through artistic works, will also then gradually refine our feelings. Well, I mean, think of a very simple thing. Surrounding yourself with beauty, thinking about the kind of music you listen to. I mean, just those two things right there. You know, that, that if you're in an environment in which the, the refined consciousness is constantly being reinforced, then you will become more refined in your own nature. If you are surrounding yourself with environments in which unrefined vibrations are constantly coming into you, then you will begin to become like those. And the more unrefined our feelings, the more unrefined our thoughts. I mean, it makes living in this world kind of tricky, so you don't want to get real paranoid about it. But it also speaks very strongly for the importance of uh, doing things in the right way. And this is Swami's life, Master's life. And, you know, Master created beauty. He, he went through a great deal of effort. He bought Lake Shrine, or, or it was given to him, and he, he worked very hard to make it beautiful. He didn't just sort of let it be. And, and Swamiji has been very... Um, people have been irritated because he, he doesn't... Well, I, we were here and we drove by the shoreline, and I, I said, well, it's uh, Shoreline Park. He said, that's not a park, that's a swamp. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I always call it swamp ever since then. But it's like, but sir, it's a natural habitat. He said, it's a swamp. <laughs> and yes, it's a natural habitat. And you can go down there and you can see all the animals in their natural habitat, and I do. But it's a swamp. It's just mud. It's, there's nothing, no human consciousness has raised the vibration of it as it can. Now, of course, you work with nature, you don't work against it and so on. But in Ananda Village, he's always been in favor of clearing it out and making it park-like. And then there's been, you know, a strong voice that says we should leave it the way it was. But he, he doesn't, he looks at it, it's chaos, you know. It's not beautiful, it's not refined, it's just there. And, and in his own home, everywhere. Do, do you see what I'm trying to say? It's very interesting to contemplate it. And so then he gives us all these different, um, you know, ideas about... He, he goes into the chakras and different levels of vibrations from which they come, which is all things that you all are familiar with, so I won't go into it here. But that's the main point. If you create art or surround yourself with things that are um, reminiscent or emanate from the lower chakras, that's where you end up. You know, when he says, you know, bodies that are squat and all the energy goes down, I look at Cindy and I know when Swami talks about dance, he talks about it, you know, with an upward movement, moving from the upper part of the body and uplifting the energy in this way and not, you know, real heavy, hard, that kind of thing. Although Indian dance, you know, has that, they wear the bells on their legs and they use their feet a great deal, but somehow the net result of that is not downward pulling. So it's not as simple as, of course, you have to dance with your feet. What else would you dance with? You're standing there. You just sort of wave your arms around. 
So it's not like your feet are not part of the story, but it all has to do with where your consciousness is going while you're doing it. It's extremely interesting. Well, let's take a short break. Do we have the tape in the back on pause, or are we recording? No, okay. All right. Any, anything anyone wants to say? And the, the, the next two chapters, we've sort of been kind of going all over the map with this one, but it's really fun. Um, and Swamiji talks about, you know, being an artist and the, how meditation plays into art and talks about how all great artists, whether they know it or not, must do something like meditation. This is what we, where we started. That there has to be some point of stillness in which you receive inspiration if what you're doing is reflective of all, at all of higher consciousness. I remember I had a very odd experience once of meeting a woman. She was either a realtor or a banker. And, I mean, I know everyone has an immortal soul and is a child of God. <laughs> but she appeared to have no center. I just, I've never been with a person who was so just restless and just so, she just appeared to have no center. I mean, it was so exhausting to be in her company. I mean, I've been with many restless people, but this one, like, she was just way beyond. She just seemed to have no point of rest in anything that she did. I just thought it must be so exhausting to be her. And, uh, and so oftentimes, even, even very creative artistic people are just like that. They're just always pushing and pushing. And those are the kind of creative people who go crazy because there's no um, inner reality from which they move. So he's, again, telling us if you really want to use art uh, for self-realization, it has to come out of some attempt to attune yourself to your higher self. So he, he gives basic instructions for meditation and then he, he, he sort of throws in somewhere in there that the key to it all is love. That, that again, he's talking about the power of feeling is the power that moves, thing, moves us first, whether it's love of beauty, love of other people, the desire to, and this is where, you know, sort of some of what Jack was uh, speaking about does come in there. There can be this desire to share, you know, this heartfelt desire to share, and love can be a very powerful motivator. You really want to make it clear thinking of, of Swami's writing, for example, he just wants to make it clear. He really wants people, he really wants people to be able to grasp it. He has a profound desire to share. You know, whether they do grasp it or not, as long as he's done his best to help them to grasp it, then he's done his part. And that was sort of the distinction I was trying to make with Jack's question, that his, he, he does his very best to make it clear, but it's love that moves you to do it. If you're just thinking about yourself, you don't care whether you've communicated or not. And that's where, back at the early part of this book, Swami was talking about that. And he, he talks about the two inverted pyramids. I'm not sure which chapter he talked about that, but it was very interesting that, you know, some, some they're just the peak is on the surface and it's very deep and wide as you go down. And some is very wide on the surface and gets narrow and narrow as you go into it. You know, some art... Uh, everything is is right there, and you you really try to plumb it for deeper meanings, and they just aren't aren't in it. There aren't any deeper meanings. And other art, what's on the surface just represents something so profound under it. That's why paintings. He used Mona, the Mona Lisa at the very beginning about how it's just it's just the face of a woman, 
And I'm sure some of you have also been to Europe and seen it in person, just as he writes about it, that you can see many, many pictures of it. But when you're with that painting, you understand why it's a great painting. Because that little peak of that woman, somehow there's some consciousness that's under it. I was thinking about this in the light of having visited the David in Florence. Of course, you know, I'd seen many pictures of it and little statues of it. And when we were in Florence the first time, um, the museum was closed and I didn't get to see it till the next day. And so I saw all these models and copies of it everywhere. But nothing prepares you for walking into that big place where this huge marble statue is. It just, it sort of sucks the breath out of you because there's, there is a vibration there that is so much more than even, I mean, it's just on the surface, it's, it's impressive because it's so massive, it's just so gigantic and it's, it's, it lives alone in this building and you just, it, it just really captures you. But that's not what captures you. What captures you is some vibration that comes out of it. It's so true and there was just something so passionate and so giving out of, from that. And that's the power of love in a very real sense. Even if you don't, it's not love in, a, in an emotional sense or a treacly sense, but it's love in the sense of a desire to embrace and to communicate and to, and to give. And his love may just have been, uh, it doesn't have to be, many artists are not um, involved with people. You know, Van Gogh is an example. I mean, he certainly had a, a tender heart and desired to be involved with people. But he just, he just poured all his, all his love into what he created. And again, those pictures that he made, even though he was so confused in so many ways in his own reality, he just poured something into those pictures that you feel all this uh, magnificent consciousness in, and you feel loved by those paintings. That's why you like them so much. And, and part of what Swami's saying here is that um, there has to be feeling and there has to be really, really uplifted feeling. And, he, and I love the way he puts it about the ego has to get out of the way. The ego has to, he, he, he describes how the ego force is a really important force. There has to be willpower. There has to be determination. And this again, sometimes people get confused and they think, that, well, I don't want to be egotistical, so they become very limp. And I'll use Georgia O'Keeffe because she's there. I mean, she, was, she had a very powerful persona, and she did not allow anything to get in her way. She was not always nice because she, she had this passion for art, and she didn't want anything else to really um, stop her. And, and maybe she was an elevated person. I don't really know. But sometimes the ego has to be engaged. There has to be a tremendous amount of willpower. You cannot do something well without a tremendous amount of willpower. But, so Swami writes very um, delicately about how you get that balance. But the willpower, you use your willpower to, to, to overcome your self-interest. You use your ego to overcome your self-interest, as he puts it in. The ego just needs to be along for the ride, you know, to enjoy the process. And then he, he talks about just with so much determination that the superconscious will inspire you if you ask. But you have to be open to that. You have to be filled with love and you have to have patience. In other words, you have to persevere. You have to have hard work. You know, every time you throw the I Ching, no matter what it says, the word perseverance is always in whatever you get. 
And after a while you stop throwing it because it just keeps telling you to persevere. That's just what you have to do. You have to just put out that kind of effort. But, but he, he talks here in, the, in the, this chapter, which is the third one that we read, Art and Meditation, about the part that, that faith plays in it. And he said, even though you have to be patient, you have to go forth with that energy. I know repeatedly over the years when Swamiji's been trying to get me to be more productive as a writer, he would always say, just write. You know, just do it. If you just keep thinking about it and wondering if it'll be there, it won't you'll, you have to really just throw yourself in. Just start the process with the faith that it'll come to you. And that's how it works. You have to just paint. You have to just write. You have to just dance. You have to just sing. If you just wait for it to happen... It'll never happen because you have to also exercise your own faith and your own willpower in doing it. Um, I thought of that wonderful affirmation that we use for prosperity. I go forth in perfect faith in the power of omnipresent good to bring me what I need at the time I need it. And it really is the creative artist's manifestation also. And that reminds me of when Swami said that uh, very little great art is created nowadays because people don't have faith anymore. They don't have faith in the superconscious. They don't have faith in God. And so they don't go forward with this thought that I will be inspired from above. It's almost we don't even think about being inspired from above. We just kind of do what we want to do here. And he talks about, you know, um, uh, about the, the language of art. And he, he goes through music. He goes through colors. He goes through lines. And... I think there's a particular coffee shop that David and I like to frequent in Palo Alto. It's Cafe Verona. You know, it's, we've been going there for years. Um, it used to be a little nicer than it is now, but we've always, we'd still like it. I like it there. But they, whoever owns that place, with all due respect, has absolutely the worst taste in art I have ever seen. And he'll find one artist after another, one medium after another, and each thing that's hung there is more horrible than the things that used to be there. That's one of the reasons why it's not as nice a place as it used to be. The people before didn't have any pretenses of turning it into a gallery. But a whole lot of what Swami writes here about different colors and different lines, and I realize it all is exemplified in the negative with the stuff that's there. Even just, he talks about too many curves, shows a lack of willpower and a lack of clarity about what you're doing. And so often you'll see abstract paintings that just have too many curves. And I never really thought about it. But they never really get anywhere. They never make a point. They just kind of, you know, go like this all the time. And you can still see other abstract art that somehow has the balance, you know, of curves and straight. Or even the curves have a deliberateness to it that isn't just um, that you didn't have the willpower to know what you were going to do. Okay. Probably about a minute more to speak, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> 